All right, all right. Bryce, Bryce Fancy. Everyone knows Bryce Fancy. All right. <laughs> the, the guy with a sweatband and a, a Heather Gray t-shirt wants to tell us what's fancy and what's not. All right, Bryce, we got it. <laughs> I might make that the cold open on every single one. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to ADSP, the podcast, episode 117, recorded on February 16th, 2023. My name is Connor, and today with my co-host Bryce, we talk to Zach Lane about a plethora of topics, including object-oriented programming, C++ containers, APIs, the elements of programming, and so much more. This is part one of probably a four or five part interview series. All right, well, we should introduce Zach. Works at Cadence Systems. Uh, senior principal engineer, I believe. Uh, more importantly, or I don't know, maybe it's more important, maybe it's not. He's a member of the ISO C++ committee, author of multiple Boost libraries. We've met before multiple times. Yeah. And I was just at your LinkedIn profile. I had no... Do you live in Austin? Yeah. Uh-huh. Man, that was a missed opportunity. I was just in Austin. <laughs> you were just in, in Austin? January. What? Yeah, for, the, uh, for my favorite race of all the races I've ever raced, which is like probably, I don't know, 30, 40, 50, the 3M Austin Half Marathon. It happened on January 22nd, and it's a great race because it's mostly downhill. Those are my favorite kind of races, you know? <laughs> I always feel I perform my best uh, <laughs> when I'm running downhill. And, uh, and yeah, I was there for a few days. Austin, Austin's got to be, it might be my number one favorite American city. Um, really? Definitely better than New York. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> now we got a problem here. <laughs> it's got that downtown vibe, but also like yeah, it's better than New York if you want to get like hit by a car. <laughs> in Austin, I think you're, you're thinking of Houston. Yeah, it's yeah. Real easy to get hit by a car in Houston. And there's a the thing when you cross the street in Houston, people speed up when they see you because they're like, "You're in my lane. Get out of my lane." <laughs> now I'm I'm I'm, sh- I'm sure that Zach has never heard uh, has never heard of this race or run this race because <laughs> when was the last time that you ran? Uh, two thousand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I mean, I, at one point I ran a five minute mile, but that was like a very long time. Ago. Ooh, that's yeah. fa- that's fast. Yeah, no, I didn't want to. Like, they made me. But was, um, it, was it like I, the police that made you? Or no, like, <laughs> it, was, it was it was that or it's a five minute mile or five years in the clink. So I was like, I was on my toes. No, it, it was uh, I was in the army 20 years ago. So or oh, wow. 25. Yeah, that's super. Uh, fast. Yeah, we're, we're running formation and, you know, you don't want to fall out. <clears throat> and um, uh, I remember literally yelling from the back of formation. Where's the fire? Because I'm like, why are we running so fast? <laughs> and then I looked at my watch and I was like, that was that was the mile mark. And that's five minutes. It was almost it was like 505 or something. I was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's very, very fast. So so you and I and I, I know, Zach, last week we spent a t- bunch of time you talk, talking about your telling me about your your army pass. But I, I, I don't know that I know this detail. Did you go to college in the army or army than college? No, I was in the college. Well, so I, I was in college and then I, I kind of dropped out and I, I was, you know, did a bunch of stuff, including being an artist. So it took me 11 years to get through undergrad, like from beginning to end. I started in 92 and I ended in 2003. So a lot of people like my age have been working a lot longer than I have. And then a lot of people much younger than me have about the same seniority that I do. It's, it's kind of an odd thing. But um, but yeah, that was just because like I was a really, really crap student and I didn't want to be in school. And 
Um, I, I, I enjoyed the coursework. I just didn't want to do it. I just, you know, I wanted to just like hang out and, and talk to people and have a good time and not do anything. You know, I mean, like, I mean, that is the best part of university. (laughs) Yeah. I mean that. And and, but so that's the thing is that I feel like it's one of those things where I was given just enough freedom to be like, Oh, why don't I just do this all the time? And so then it turned into like my entire existence. And so that was, um, that was, you know, bad for, for like coursework and stuff. But then eventually um, you know, I kind of slept in the mud for three years and I was like, oh yeah, I like want a job job. I don't want to do this. <laughs> I, don't want to, I don't want to do anything like this. So I became super student when I came back and I was on the dean list and all this stuff. So yeah, it, it was, it was good for me to have that as the sort of break that I had in the middle. Cause if I just sort of, you know, worked at Seven Eleven or something, I'd probably still be working there. I saw that you also, you went to UT Austin. Was that both before and after the three years in the mud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I went to UT Austin because I was, you know, from Houston and I had one parent who lived in Austin. So I knew Austin. I knew I wanted to live there. I liked it a lot. I had friends that from my high school that ended up there. And so I went there for like essentially social reasons. And I just happened to be in a top five computer science department, like, like with zero effort on my end. Like I was in the top 10 of my graduating class. And at the time that meant, you, you had a push button admission to any um, school in in the UT system if you're if you're a Texas graduating high school student. Wow. So I, I I literally filled out like a postcard and that was it. And so um, like the fact that I got such a good computer science education was a complete accident. Um, but I'm I'm really thankful for it. I got a I got a really good education. Now, now did you did you know um, did were you doing computer science before you uh, went into the army? Like did you know when you went to college that's what you yeah. wanted to do? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, well, the funny thing is like my, my entire childhood, I wanted to be a physicist. Like I, I, I saw these guys on Nova on, on, you know, uh, on public TV. And I was like, I want to be one of those guys. I want to be a physicist. Right. I was always obsessed with like, you know, space and, and, um, astrophysics and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I, I like read a bunch of physics texts, like in high school, like just out of curiosity. Right. Um, and I, I would read physics papers sometimes. I was like really into it. And I remember um, at some point um, I was just messing around with my computer and I wanted to like do a little bit of programming and all the stuff I did was physics related. Um, But then when I was filling out this little postcard that I referred to before, like there was a, when you're in the college of natural sciences, there's one postcard, there's a different one for the the college of uh, liberal arts. And so I was was on the natural sciences one. there's a, there's a checkbox for each of the majors, right? So if you get into UT, like you just pick your major, you get into one of those two schools, like like I said, and you pick the major. And I, and I was looking at the check boxes and I was like, huh, maybe I'll do computer science. That's literally how long I thought about it. Like, <laughs> cause like physics, computer science, eh, why not? <laughs> and, uh, and so that's why I did <laughs> to the major that I did. Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you went into physics, you probably would have ended up in computer science anyways. I mean, yeah. And in a sense, absolutely. Like, so, you know, I've been working uh, with some committee stuff uh, with some people who are, you know, working physicists and they're trying to get things like, you know, SIMD uh, stuff, standardized um, stuff for like um, uh, linear algebra interfaces standardized. And so a lot of those folks are, are um, mathematicians or physicists and they do tons of like really rigorous computer science work as part of their job. It's just the nature of the business. If you, if you work in any kind of applied math uh, and if you work in any kind of physics these days, you know, your job is a programmer, like more than it's not. Yeah. It, it's, it's really um, sort of astonishing how over the past 30 to 40 years in almost all scientific fields, um, a large chunk of the field has moved to computational work, but even for the chunk yeah. of the field, that's still wet lab work where you're still, you're, you're running physical experiments or something. 
increasingly there's a computational component to that work too, because you're collecting so much data with these instruments that you have to do some post-processing of whatever actual experiments you're doing. Yeah. And so it's yeah. like, like these days, like if you're, if you're, if you're in a career path where you want to study the sciences, uh, you're probably going to end up having to do some programming. Yeah. Well, so the first half of my career was at um, a research lab at UT um, called Applied Research Laboratories, ARL. And uh, I worked with a whole bunch of people on sonar. And um, most of them were, were physicists who decided they didn't want to do physics anymore. One of whom was, he said, the reason he did uh, sonar instead of cosmology is because sonar is so much harder. <laughs> because it's, it's a crazy, crazy hard thing to do. Uh, because no, the noise propagation is, is incredibly noisy. Uh, I mean, uh, sound propagation is incredibly noisy. And it's like, uh, you might as well just call it noise propagation. It's all dealing with noise. Uh, whereas like you can get really good signals sometimes uh, in cosmology. And those tend to be the areas that people focus on. But um, yeah, it was interesting like dealing with like there, there was one project in particular. It was just me and this physicist, right? So we had this Kalman tracker uh, that we used to, to track signals and sonar data. And we had this old implementation. It was really crufty. Everybody's afraid to touch it. And they're like, we're going to do a fresh implementation of that from scratch. And I remember at one point, like we weren't doing a lot of object-oriented programming for this. Obviously, it's numeric stuff, and I don't really like oh anyway. And um, so he was—he asked me at one, at one point, "What's this virtual? What's virtual function? What is that?" And I was like, "Oh," and I, I explained like you know how you'd have like a bunch of different flavors of stuff, and you have a switch statement. It kind of gets rid of the switch statement, and, and it goes all the way through. And there's these problems with it, and blah blah. blah. And that was a little bit beyond what he could understand. And so six months later, is like what is this virtual function? And I did the whole thing. I explained it to him. We went into his office with chalkboard, explained the whole thing. And then a third time it happened about a year later. And I was like, Jim, I'm done. Like, I'm not, <laughs> this is it. This is the last one. Make, take notes if you want to know what this is in the future or just live in ignorance. And I remember at one point, um, it, it, the same kind of thing happened, but the other way around. Like I asked about something I was kind of curious about, but it didn't stick. And I asked him about the same thing again. He's like, I already explained this to you, like some physics thing, right? And um, it's really funny how when people are technically oriented, whatever they're oriented towards, they, the, the things that they're interested in stick in their heads really easily uh, compared to other equally hard to understand things that are just outside of their interest area, right? And so when, when you sort of focus on one technical area, not another one, even if it's an adjacent area, a lot of times like there's, there's a real lack of understanding, and it's not because these things are any harder to understand. It's that you're just not oriented towards doing that work to understand them. You know, it's like that quote: uh, "The neurons that fire together wire together." It's like if you already have the vocabulary in your head, you know, learning something that's adjacent to that is super easy. But if it's in some other domain, that sure, it's just as hard. But you don't have the vocabulary, you don't have the the wires that can fire together. So it's just it's. You no, know, I remember. It's like so many things I've learned. Like I went through a finance phase where I wanted to be a quant and like they just have the, the vocabulary, the jargon that they have, like share, stock, uh, you know, you get into options and stuff, derivatives, exotic. It's just like you have to learn this whole vocabulary first. And like if you I remember asking my parents, man, like what's the what's the difference between like a stock and a share? And like they didn't they didn't know. And uh, and it's like it's, it's such a subtle thing, but it's not difficult. It's just you need you need to have the vocabulary in order to to really grok if someone's explaining something to you. If, yeah. if every fourth word is like, I, I don't know what that means, then it's not going to stick, right? Yeah. And I think that's, that's, that's a, it's a huge problem for uh, software engineering education because uh, we, we have, I mean, our, every field has its own language, but I think we in particular have a lot of jargon 
Um, and I think yeah. that uh, it becomes so natural to us that we don't even realize uh, how unapproachable it is to uh, to newcomers. And the way it's taught is like, like I was, who was I just talking to this the other day? The polymorphism, like in school, it's just taught like when they teach polymorphism, the unit in whatever engineering 201, uh, software engineering 201, they just teach like runtime polymorphism, which also is known right. as dynamic polymorphism. But like there are, I think we, I listed off like 10 different types, static polymorphism, also known as compile time polymorphism, ad hoc polymorphism, parametric polymorphism, like rank polymorphism. It just goes on and on and on. But in school, they own, like they refer to polymorphism and it just refers to dynamic but there's like literally 10 different types and there, i've never seen a talk that talks about like the umbrella world uh, you know here's an umbrella term polymorphism and all the different types and i remember in an interview i got asked once what is static polymorphism uh and then i was like ah i think that's like <laughs> i think that's like templates and they were like yeah uh and they're like so why is it called static polymorphism and i was like listen i don't know much about templates like uh i just started learning c plus plus uh and uh Anyways, it's just, yeah, like the, the vocabulary problem is, it's it's a problem because even in education, like they, they teach things in a very, very, I wouldn't even say it's simplified. Like I think that's misleading to teach the word polymorphism and not start off by saying, okay, we're going to focus on this one type, but like there are 12 different other types that you're going to get yeah. to depending on the language you work in. And I think that's really true, especially in the light that, of the fact that, you know, th there is lots of use for polymorphism in code there's very seldom a need for dynamic polymorphism code, right? And so like very often I see people do stuff that are, you know, <clears throat> the kind of intermediate programs. I work with a lot of programmers that are like that and it's not a failing of theirs is that they came from double E and they're kind of learning on the job. And so it's another, it's another question of, of um, focus. And so when, when they, when they see a new programming technique, they aren't like really interested in drilling down on that. That's what they're, they become obsessed with for a while. They're like, Oh, someone did it a different way. I don't care. Right. They're <laughs> like, I'm, I'm getting my work done this way. That's the important part. I, the way that I'm used to doing it, how can I perfect whatever direction I'm already in? So if they already know like, Oh, type stuff, they write lots of virtual functions, even when that's not necessarily the right, the right. right tool for the job. And um, that's a, you know, it's one of the things I just mentioned, not liking, Oh, but I think that's like, really big deal in our industry that there's so many people that even now, if you look like on online courses, like, you know, introductory stuff for C++ people, there's no good learning resources for C++. That's a different topic. But what there is out there, a lot of it's uh, very focused on the same kind of overlap with, I'm sure, other courses that the same people are making for other languages. Yeah. And that includes like lots of ideas from Java and, and other things that like sort of um, co-evolved with C++ in the early days. But uh, those people writing those tutorials have no idea that like the the sort of cognoscenti within C++ have completely moved away from that paradigm and that's seldom used yeah. except sometimes as an implementation detail of something else. Um, yeah, it's it's really kind of it's kind of unfortunate because I think a lot of people reach for that. In fact, you know, the previous role I had at my current job, I did a lot of like internal training and and like the, there was part of this thing called the quality team. The whole idea was to like decrease the defect rate in our, in our code, which was kind of high. Well, tra tragically high. It was, it was awful, right? And so we were trying to get rid of like, you know, crashes at customer sites and stuff like this. So one of the, one of the things my, my boss and I were talking about when I was first uh, joined the team was he was like, you know, maybe we could do some internal training about this or that. What do you think about putting together like, like a, a course from first principles, like how to write code well, like, you know, good object oriented techniques. And I was like, well, that's, it's funny that you say that because there's no such thing. <laughs> His head kind of exploded. Um, but, you know, it, um, it, he was great about, like, recognizing, like, um, 
new material when I would present to him, like new techniques and why they were important. And he, he really took a lot of those those lessons on board. And that, that was really cool. So he wasn't like pushing back against that. He was just surprised by it. And, and that reflects like an older mentality because when he was a day-to-day practitioner, that was kind of the way you did things. Um, and unfortunately that has persisted, especially as yes, like people that were from that era move into management and then people below them are trying to do something a certain way. They're like, oh, you want to do an object oriented thing with like some big class diagram or something. And so that, that tends to perpetuate it. And I'm kind of waiting for people to like, I know no one's going to read EOP, but I'm ready for people to adapt those, those kind of, or adopt, I should say those kind of, um, those kind of approaches of, you know. And that's, uh, that's elements of programming, which is, uh. Stepanov's uh, uh, book, which is sort of the, the it's it might not be the best book about computer science ever written, but it's the best one I've ever. It's read. the it's the only like book it's... on computer science or programming that I've ever read. I think we've talked in this podcast before about how I'm not a huge fan of like. Wait, re- didn't you? I thought you said that about SICP, which is the structure. I, you know what? Yeah, computer it, programs. It, I I've read parts of SICP. I've Elements of Programming is the only programming book I've read all the way through. Like those are the two that I've read from, like and not just like skimmed the index of. Um, uh, and, uh, elements of programming is the only one that I've read. I've actually read through it twice. So I've read lots of them and I really think elements of programming is the one that, that I appreciate the most. And in fact, what I often tell people is, you know, you can get us a free PDF download these days. Like you don't even need to pay for it. You don't even need to hold around a dead tree in your hands, right? All you need to do is like go and download it from somewhere. But if you can internalize the first six pages of the first, um, of the first pair, I mean the uh, first chapter, that's all you need. Literally, the first six pages. If you can internalize that, the rest of it is logical extension of that first six pages. If if you apply those first six pages to all these kinds of programming styles that are that are covering the rest of the book, that's where the rest of the book comes from. And the rest of the book is very dense and hard to get through. That first six pages is also dense and hard to get through, but it's only six pages. So it's worth, you know, a time investment. And I always tell people that I don't think I've had any takers, but I mean, the stuff in that first six pages is so good. You, you know, I don't know if you guys had a similar experience of like, you know. When I was first starting out, I would hear about some technique and I would like be like, I'm going to find an excuse to use as my code because that's interesting. <laughs> I'm going to see if that works, right? And so you do things like kind of like the wrong way on purpose to see how it worked. And then you're like, ah, it works or it didn't. And you kind of adapt, right? So there have been many, many different styles of like things from like, you know, just texting, text, textual conventions like, you know, where you put hanging braces, all these different things I've tried over the course of my career over and over again, different experiments. And the only bit of advice that I have, once I internalized it, I literally never looked back or never changed, even when I was uh, had new new data introduced to me, is those first six pages of that first chapter. I mean, they're, they're really, I think, unassailable what lessons. Are the, what are the key lessons to take away from? So, so some of the key lessons um, are things that people already pretty well understand, right? Um, so one of the things is... Um, you know, you want to write things for, for reuse. And that means like writing things generically. Um, there's lots of things about like um, defining what should and should not be in interfaces. And this is the part that I think people don't take on board as well. Um, one thing in particular is that, you know, they, they define what a basis of operations is. A basis is, it takes its name as analogy to like uh, basis vectors in, a, in an n space, right? So you have n basis vectors that are orthonormal, and then that defines an n space. Similarly, you can define n operations on your type. And as long as those n operations on the type are defined, you can do anything that that type is capable of just with some combination of those. And as long as you can efficiently get to any 
behavior you want to using those types, and that's the right, or sorry, the, those, uh, those operations, that's the right set of operations. And you don't want any more operations than that because that increases test burden, surface area, it creates confusion, all kinds of stuff like that. So you want it to be small, but not too small. You want it to be efficient. And then as long as that exists, you can do anything else. And the reason you don't want to add anything else is because if you write free functions instead of writing a new member, then when some other type, you've got your type T, some other type U, you write it in the future, and it has very similar semantics in some aspect of what this type T did. Then all of a sudden, that free function you wrote, you can just use it and it works, right? This, this is the, the same idea behind the algorithms library by one of the same two people, right? Um, Alex Stepanoff, um, Paul McJones being the other one. Um, the idea there was like, we're going to write all these algorithms and not like hang an algorithm off of all these different data structures like vector and, and map and so on. And um, I think that's the right way to do things. And in fact, I, I really think after going, after having gone through the process of adding a new container-like thing to the standard library, which is flat map, um, I realized that uh, I don't ever want to do that again. I don't want anyone else to have to do that again either because I think the right thing for something like flat map, well, let me back up. So the, what I'm talking about in particular is flat map because it's just, you know, cloning most of the interface of map. It has things like um, insert, it has in place, it has the square bracket operator, it has try in place, it has blah, blah, it has all these different things, right? And if you boil it down, it's just try in place. Like literally, you can write try in place and all the others, like in their in their description, they say like, <laughs> we're going to do try and place. And if that doesn't work, then we're going to create a new object. And then we're going to try and place. That's what square bracket is defined as like roughly. Right. Um, and so on and so forth. Like all the other kind of inserts are just some permutation of try and place. So that begs the question, if we have map, flat map, multi-map, flat multi-map, um, I guess the own order ones don't quite work the same, but if we have that for the, for the, um, the tree-like containers, even if you have a flattened tree in the case of flat map, why don't we have just like a free function that does insert, that does in terms of try in place? And then if you want to make your own map-like type, you only have to define like, you know, 10, 12 functions, something like that, instead of like literally, I think for std vector, which is much smaller, I think there was 64 um, members. Yeah, and, and like, and, and most of them are some form of in place, pushback, or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if you had in place and in place back, um, you know, that, that's all you yeah. really need, right? You can even have a branch inside of in place that tells it it's at the back and it does the right thing, right? So, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a generalization that, that costs you some efficiency, so maybe you don't want that, but, but you, you could get there too. So the long and short of it is I, I think people should be writing more um, containers because, like, let's say you've got vector and static vector and dynamic, or uh, not uh, dynamic vector, what am I trying to say? Um, um, small vector, right? That's what I'm trying to say. So small vector is the one with the small buffer optimization. Then then it goes to the heap if it can't if it can't do stuff there. You really want to be able to write all those really conveniently, right? Um, because there's no reason why you shouldn't have a vector-like interface for any of these things, but people don't have a convenient way of doing that. They have to, like, repeat those 64 yeah. uh, different ways of doing stuff. So it's it's I think it's a, a big fat bummer and um, uh, David Stone actually uh, he's another uh, committee member um, he has a project that he's been working on for a little while to try to make the abstractions for all of the we have sort of these sort of categories of containers in the and the st and the uh, and the standard right so um, the um, uh, 
the vector-like ones are sequence containers and the uh, node-based containers are um, what do we call those? We call them associative containers. So those are things like map and set and so forth. So he's tried to do exactly what I just talked about, right? Like figuring out what that small basis is and let's make free functions for everything else. Um, and he says he's still not happy with it. He's been, he's been working on it for a while. But um, I think that kind of thing, really, if people did more of that, then we would be better off. So the, the, the classic example to me is, um, and this is a real question I had at work. Like someone said, well, I got this um, string view and um, it's got like find last not of or something. So one of these one of these algorithms that hangs off of strings and string views. And he said, but I've got to span sometimes. Sometimes I've got a string view. Like how do I how do I do this? And I said, well, you have to construct a string view from the span in order to get that algorithm. It's dumb, but that's what you have to do. <laughs> and that that's such an unsatisfying yeah. answer. Like why isn't that an algorithm, right? And why don't we have just a set of string algorithms that does string stuff, right? Um, I think that could work really nicely. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's um, I think what, once you learn more about generic programming, you you start to become aware of the cost of adding a new type and of added complexity in the interface of a type. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's like any time either worker on the committee that somebody shows me, you know, their proposal for some new class does some great thing. And it's got like a lot of knobs and bells and whistles. My like first gut reaction is always like, all right, let's like take all those knobs and bells and whistles and like take them out. And like, let's, let's, let's just get down to like, what are the, the core basis operations and uh, of this thing, um, and it's it's because any time that we we add additional complexity that we don't need, it it um, uh, one it's 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 typically a mistake that we can't come back and undo later, but um, yeah. we we end up in this world where we have things like string that have you know, dozens of different operations on it. And when we when we wanted to make a, another string-like thing, string view, we had no choice but to make string view have all those same operations as well. Um, and I, I think that that's a much worse world than the world that we could have lived in, where we could have, we could have had some string algorithms and maybe we could have introduced some sort of concept for string types. And we could have had... Um, some like string view would have looked a lot more like span. It would have been a very simple thing. And and it would yeah. have been possible to have like a, str a string like concept where you could just have your own string thing, just satisfy that concept. In the same vein as that, you know, when we added, um, I know a lot of people are happy that we're finally getting understood string uh, in the last couple of standards. We've got like contains start with and ends with. And I, I complained so loudly in, in LEWG that we should not be adding these. Like these are these are algorithms that we should have with those names that work with strings. And they said, but they don't work for char star. I said, so let's make an overload that works with char star. This is this is not hard to do. We can add that, right? And I was like, even if we even if we start a new um, section of the library, like a sub namespace or or some kind of naming convention, we have all the string algorithms over here in their own little spot. That beats having like to add this to string and then string view and then whatever else comes along later. Because, you know, sometimes people are going to want to have their own string-like thing. And it doesn't um, have to be uh, necessarily interoperable with string or string view. And, and they just can't make it work with generic code without repeating all this API. And I think that's, that's a huge problem. Like, we want people to write, um, you know, quick and dirty code that's reusable by everybody as much as they can, right? Because the testing burden for writing 
complicated things is so high that we just don't do it, right? And so you have this untested stuff or you have stuff that just doesn't work in a generic context because either I was going to have to write these extra interfaces and test them, but since I don't want to do that, I just don't write them or I don't test them. Neither one of those is a very good answer. I mean, this is why, um, you know, this Boost library has STL interfaces and hopefully we're going to standardize this, but I have a class in there or a template in there that, that lets you write iterators much more simply than like repeating all the, the API of an iterator because what I found was uh, I was working on this other library that needed iterators all over the place for views and ranges of things. And every time I wrote an iterator, I made like a subtle mistake and I started realizing I was, I was doing it a lot. And so I was like, well, I should have glue for this. this. This should be easy. And so I think we should try to, if we're going to define interfaces that everyone needs to use, then we should define either really good glue that helps them generate that code or we should define them in such a minimal way that they don't need to generate yeah. that code because all of these bugs that we're introducing, you know, there's something like, I think the, the industry standard when I learned this back in school uh, was something like for every hundred lines of code, um, you've got a bug and that's, that's considered to be a good defect rate. I'm talking about the first, the first draft, right? So the, the first time you write some code, people have done some, some testing and stuff, they check it in. And then from that stage, we're not even talking about just, I banged out some, some you know bullshit like this is this is actually like I've 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 done my due diligence and I've still got basically uh, a bug every hundred lines. So if you can reduce the number of lines people write, you reduce the defect rate. That's just that's just um, like sort of an inherent thing to writing code. It seems like it doesn't seem to depend on the language or anything. Yeah. Um, but right now we have a lot of things, particularly in the standard, that that don't lend themselves to reuse that way. Like I I mean, I know very very few people have ever written an iterator. Like, and, and, you know, whenever, <laughs> whenever I have had to write an iterator, I typically only write the operations that I am going, that I know I will need to use in my code. <laughs> yep. And it's simply because like, if I'm, if yeah. I need to show the code to somebody else, I, I want it to be as like short as possible. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And, uh, and the funny thing is like that, that will not fly with the ranges. Yeah. Um, Right, because the, the ranges are actually like concept. Yeah, I know like it drives me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a real problem for me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, in, in a similar vein, you know, there's one of the things that we spend um, uh, a, a lot of time talking about when we're designing new library facilities um, is, uh, I think, the questions of like default constructability. And uh, the conversions that a type has comes up a ton. And like the default constructability, uh, whether or not your thing can be default constructed is usually like this huge question for your type because if it can't be default constructed, then there's a lot of context, especially in generic code, where your thing isn't going to be able to be used. But if it yeah. does, you know, if you are going to make it default constructed, is it does your thing have some sort of uh, you know, null state or or empty state, and if so, what does that do to the invariance of the rest of your thing? Um, yeah. And uh, and and likewise for conversions, um, you know, this question of uh, when does your thing convert, and um, are those conversions implicit or explicit, um, is is a is a huge question in the design of almost any type, um, especially when there's. Uh, I think on on the committee we tend to like anything that has potential for performance loss to be explicit. Yeah, yeah. So I, I remember saying to a bunch of people at committee meeting, we we're just hanging out after you know sessions, <clears throat> and I said, 
I, I think I, I literally said uh, implicit conversions are evil because like so many people write so many of them and they, they, they cause all kinds of headaches. And then um, uh, Bjarne, who happened to be there, said, um, no, they're, they're not evil. You just need to make sure that an implicit conversion converts between something that you're converting from and something converting to where the to and from types are essentially the same thing. And then, then it's natural and normal and, and everybody can, can reason about it. So like converting between a float and a double should be implicit for that reason, for instance, right? There's, there's questionable, and I think other languages have made a different decision. I think I like the decision more that an integral value and a floating point value maybe should not be interconvertible, right? But that's a default we have from C. Um, and I think the question of whether something is default uh, constructible, and by the way, this is another one of the first six pages of EOP is the notion of regularity, right? Like you have all these these operations that are like, if you're like an int, you're regular, and that, that allows you to reason about your code. Uh, and in particular, to do local reasoning about your code, because you don't have to worry about things like the semantics of the code plus where do all these guys live in memory? This this one over here, that one over there. Well, she lives over here and he lives over there. And like, I, I don't know if the alias did the same thing. Like you, local reasoning is enabled by saying, well, I can see the values and I see how they're used. And the semantics of the, the operations that I'm doing is all I have to care about. I don't have to care about lifetime and other things like this. Um, so... The reason that default constructability is in there, even though it's not actually required for any of the algorithms in the SDL, like everything, everything else in in, um, in regular is actually required to to operate with everything in the SDL. And so you can see why that's a useful definition for someone who's going to write something like the SDL. And so someone asked um, Alex Stepanov one time, like, um, why is that in there? It's not it's not required, unlike everything else. He said, well, it sure is convenient. <laughs> And to me, that's that's enough because, you know, part of that first six pages, he says, like, you know, you need to not just write, like, uh, a basis of operations that, like, could work sometime. And the example he gives is, like, what if you have a mathy kind of type, right? So it, it does arithmetic operations. Well, you could provide, like, uh, minus but not plus, like, binary minus but not binary plus. And you could say, well, you just negate it. Yeah, it's in there, right? So I mean, yeah, okay, you could do that, but it's incredibly inconvenient. It's a it's a it's a type that that you want to use for math, so you should be able to do that. And I think default constructability goes under the the the, the same rubric. Like, is it convenient? And if not, then then why not? So I think there are some types that really you cannot default construct because it doesn't make sense, right? So something like a lock. I know there are patterns that people come up with where like they want a default constructed lock, but I think really. The 99.9% .9 cases, the reason I'm constructing a lock is so that in its lifetime it holds a lock and that's what it's for and it shouldn't do anything else. So I think that that should be not default constructible. But I think most things we should definitely have regularity as part of them. And in particular, since that statement from Stepanov, we now have move semantics in the language because that was, that was an old interview, I think. Uh, but now the argument to me is both convenience, the Stepanov answer, but my new answer is can you move this thing? If you can't move it, then yeah, let's talk about it, whether it's default constructible. But if you can move it, I don't want to hear this. It changes the invariants because the invariants are already that way. Like you have a moved from state that you have to reason about. Uh, we don't have, unfortunately, um, a de destroying move operation in C++ where when you move something, it's gone. I don't have to reason about it anymore. I think that's a better semantic, um, but we don't have that. Um, like... Uh, the fact that I've got this thing around and I have to have that in a set of, of, of things that I'm reasoning about when I look at the, at the value because it was moved from, um, that means that I have to be able to reason about that before it's got a value as well. Um, 
So I, I don't think there's anything wrong or messy about that. I don't think it weakens invariance in the way that people claim that it does. I just don't. I just don't think it's a big deal. Yeah, I, I tend so, to agree. Yeah, and I've had the same argument with a lot of people, a lot of very smart people, and in some case, I'm the only one in the discussion that thinks this. And um, so I know it's not a popular opinion amongst, especially a lot of the sort of thought leaders in the community, but I really think it's the right answer. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and have a great day.